Well, we seem to find ourselves right now in November of 2021 at a very uncertain point in the pandemic. Just a few weeks ago, it looked like at least the bad phase was on the way out. Things were getting better, and then the Delta surge changed everything. And now it looks like humanity's future, at least in the near term, depends a lot on how the virus SARS-CoV-2 evolves. Will the Delta variant spawn something that's even more transmissible, or maybe something that gets around all the immunity that humans have built up through past infections and our vaccination campaigns? It seems like there has to be a limit, since most existing viruses don't keep spawning new and much more transmissible and dangerous variants every few months. Flu viruses keep evolving, but usually not enough to turn the whole world upside down. Those are the issues I'll be looking at on today's episode of Follow the Science, an exploration of science, medicine, and medical misinformation. I'm your host, Faye Flam. I'm a science journalist and a Bloomberg Opinion columnist, and this podcast is funded by a grant from the Society for Professional Journalists, or at least it was, but now I'm looking for new sources of funding. My guest today is Jesse Bloom. He's a biologist at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, and until COVID-19 came along, he studied the evolution of other viruses, including influenza viruses. And now he has focused a lot on SARS-CoV-2, how it's been evolving, and how it's likely to evolve in the future. But I kick off our discussion by asking him a question about his flu research and whether anybody knows how long humans have had to contend with the flu. Influenza viruses have been infecting humans for a long time. So the natural reservoir of influenza A viruses, which are what most people, it's kind of the, the particular class of influenza viruses that people usually mean when they refer to influenza, they naturally exist in wild waterfowl, but they've been jumping into mammals, including horses and pigs and humans for a long time. You know, the first flu pandemic for which we have molecular evidence, like actual sequences of viruses is from 1918. But there's definitely been, it's definitely thought that there's been flu viruses in humans before then. And many medical historians think there's been flu in humans, at least going back to the 1500s and possibly long before that, you know, it gets increasingly hard to diagnose the causative agent of epidemics if you go back in time. But based on the medical descriptions, many medical historians think there's been influence in humans for at least the last 500 years, and it could well be longer than that. And so before COVID, was the bulk of your research on the evolution of influenza viruses? Yeah, my, my lab is, is generally interested in sort of viruses that evolve rapidly in ways that allow them to escape from antibody immunity. And prior to the emergence of SARS-CoV-2, not all of our research, but most of our research was focused on influenza viruses. And that's because influenza viruses were the most prominent human viral pathogen that, that underwent this type of rapid evolution. Obviously now with SARS-CoV-2, we have another human virus, which also appears to be undergoing rapid evolution. What do we know about the variants that have been successful, about sort of what made them successful? Is there any understanding of what it is about Delta that made it more successful than its predecessors? Yeah. So we don't have a very complete understanding of that. And, and so obviously the success of a viral lineage like Delta, for instance, depends on how well it can transmit from human to human. And transmission is like very complicated, right? Because it includes both how much virus is the infected person 
have growing in them because the more they have growing, the more they might breathe out. But it also includes things like where is the virus growing in your airways, right? There's certain position places in your airways where having the virus growing in that particular location may make you breathe it out, you know, sort of more effectively. So for instance, the reason that measles virus is hypertransmissible, measles is the most transmissible respiratory virus, is because it replicates in a particular location in your airways where you aerosolize it very efficiently. And so one of the things that can influence transmissibility is where exactly the virus is replicating in your airways. And then also sort of how stable the virus is once you breathe it out, and then how well it can attach to and infect new cells. So these are all super complicated. And for other variants like the alpha variant, which has now been displaced by Delta, but was also a more transmissible variant that emerged. Alpha was actually better at binding to ACE2 than the viruses that came before it. And sort of prior to all of these variants, there was a mutation called D614G, which occurred in, and basically all the viruses have that now. And that mutation actually made the spike more stable. So probably the viruses were sort of able to maybe survive out there longer and still be good at infecting cells. So it, it's very complicated what exactly makes one virus more transmissible than another. It's hard to predict, but certainly we can say Delta is more transmissible than the variants that came before it. Is there any way to predict whether it's coming close to a plateau where it's sort of maxed out? I mean, measles is kind of plateaued and haven't other viruses plateaued that they don't keep getting more transmissible every year? I do think that there will be a plateau to the inherent transmissibility of SARS-CoV-2. And the reason I think that is exactly what you were explaining. When we look at other viruses that have been in humans for a long time, they eventually get to a plateau. There are going to be physical factors that limit how well the virus can transmit. That said, I don't think we have the information to say at this point whether SARS-CoV-2 has hit that plateau of transmissibility or not. <laughs> the, the plateau exists, I believe, but whether we're there or not, I, I don't know the answer to that. We then start talking about the way that the environment steers evolution and viruses evolve by natural selection, that is survival of the fittest, but what counts as fittest depends on the environment, and for a virus that infects humans, that means the human body. So when very few people have immunity, the viruses that tend to win out are the ones that spread most easily from person to person, which is why we saw the Delta variant take off the way it did. But when lots of us have immunity, then it's more likely that the viruses that can evade our antibodies and infect already immune people are going to gain the upper hand and become dominant. So we talk about human immunity as a form of what's called evolutionary pressure. That is something that steers the course of evolution. So in some of the earlier interviews I've done, people talked about two sources of evolutionary pressure for the virus. First, there's just transmissibility, which would be the, the main factor when there's little immunity. And now we have immune evasion, which is another pressure that I imagine is going to continue to increase as more people become immune. So what do we know about immune evasion? And So, so this, <laughs> this is a great question. And so, and so I completely agree with the premise of your question. There are two selective forces two strong selection pressures on SARS-CoV-2. One is to sort of become more inherently transmissible. And then as soon as there are people out there that have immunity, the other pressure is to evade that immunity. And the reason this, the second pressure is important is if the virus has mutations that reduce the recognition by that say antibodies, it has a better chance of causing a breakthrough infection, infecting someone who's already been vaccinated or infected before. And so we know that this sort of immune pressure is also occurring 
So most SARS-CoV-2 variants of concern, including the Delta variant and the Beta variant and, and pretty much almost all these other variants, have, have mutations at some of the sites where antibodies commonly bind to the spike. And these mutations decrease the ability of antibodies from prior infection or vaccination to neutralize the viruses. And so, so that's going to probably be an ongoing evolutionary process that probably never reaches a plateau because the virus kind of has a lot of room to get new mutations that evade antibodies. And then obviously people will get infected with those or vaccinated with an updated vaccine, and then they'll make new antibodies. And then the virus will try to get mutations that evade those antibodies. And this process will kind of go on forever. And for influenza virus, that's a process that we see goes on year after year after year. What we don't know at this point is how long sort of how rapidly will SARS-CoV-2 accumulate mutations that erode immunity? And then another sort of practical question is how, how severe are reinfections? You know, because the virus can, can gain erode enough immunity that can reinfect someone, but there, there can still be some residual immunity, which can reduce the severity of disease. That seems to be what we're seeing now, isn't it? That breakthrough infections are not as severe as- um, Exactly. So, so right now there's strong evidence that prior immunity, either from vaccination or infection, both reduces your risk of getting infected. And if you do get infected, tends to reduce your disease severity. So, so those are both good. Unfortunately, it's not perfect. You know, there are some viruses like measles virus or smallpox virus, where if you have immunity from a prior vaccination or infection, you're extremely unlikely to ever be infected for the whole rest of your life. And clearly for SARS-CoV-2, uh, due to a combination of factors, including the viral evolution, the, the immunity is not going to be lifelong, but certainly we see that it is still reducing both your risk of getting infected and your risk of getting severely ill if you do get infected. Do you think it's going to be uh, hard for the virus to find a pathway that makes it both more transmissible and evades immunity? Is that something that... So, 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 so certainly there are constraints on the virus, right? Certainly there's a lot of mutations that reduce antibody recognition a lot but just impair the virus's ability to infect cells or its transmissibility. And in general, the virus is not going to acquire those mutations because it's very costly for the virus to uh, decrease transmissibility. However, what we've seen both experimentally and more compellingly in nature is that although selection for transmissibility puts quite a bit of constraint on the evolution, unfortunately, there still seem to be no shortage of mutations that the virus can acquire. So I don't think the virus is going to run out of evolutionary space, but I do think the, the constraints you're talking about will probably slow down the evolution because maybe the virus can only tolerate certain of the mutations and maybe sometimes it needs to get certain combinations of mutations to maintain transmissibility and still erode antibody recognition. So I think these processes are why are helping slow down the evolution. And it's why, you know, even though SARS-CoV-2 has been in humans for, you know, getting close to two years at this point, you know, we see some erosion of antibody neutralization. We certainly do not see escape, you know, full escape from antibody neutralization. Does, does the erosion, is it worse for vaccines than for past infection? Because past infection gives you a greater variety of antibodies? There, there are lots of studies looking at this. At this point, I would say I don't think there's enough data to compellingly say one versus the other is more resistant to erosion by immunity. As far as neutralizing antibodies, there's actually some evidence that vaccination might actually elicit antibodies that have a little bit broader specificity that are a little bit more resistant to erosion by, by viral mutations. And in fact, we even have a, 
a paper on that. On the other hand, immunity is not just antibody neutralization. It also is contributed by things like T cells. And there's been, I think, le there's less clear knowledge of like how exactly T cells from vaccination infection work. So at this point, I don't think we can say for sure whether, whether one is better than the other. And we certainly do know that people who have been, were previously infected like way back and then got vaccinated or actually people who are vaccinated and then got a breakthrough infection or people who are vaccinated and then got a booster, these people all seem to have higher levels of antibodies than people who are either just vaccinated once or just infected once. So that, yeah, that gets to my next question, which is knowing what you know about viral evolution, are there recommendations for going forward, whether we should be focusing on getting vaccines to other countries where there's very little vaccine before we worry about third shots, or should we be boosting people, or should we be focusing on updating these vaccines so that they go after Delta and maybe also then we'll go after the offsprings of Delta better than what we've got? So as far as your first question, I do think it's an important goal to vaccinate as much of the world's population as possible against SARS-CoV-2, because that will reduce the, the circulation of the virus globally and in the end probably reduce, you know, the risk, the risk to everybody because it is a globally circulating virus. So I think that's an important goal and that needs to be kept as like a really top goal to get everybody vaccinated against this. You know, as far as booster vaccinations, I think there's also, there's certainly good evidence those boost antibody levels. You know, I'm going to get a booster vaccine when I'm, whenever I'm eligible for one. And, you know, I know, I know there's been a lot of discussion of whether, you know, people in the U.S. getting booster vaccines is bad if people in other countries haven't been vaccinated at all. I think a lot of that depends on questions that are sort of beyond my purview, like what are the logistics of all of this? Like, you know, if you if you don't go to Walgreens and get your booster vaccine, does that vaccine actually get administered to someone in a different country who hasn't gotten vaccinated yet? Or do they just throw it away? You know, and, and, and if it's the latter case, I, it seems like it's a good idea for you to get the booster vaccine. So, so a lot of those are more sort of logistical supply chain questions, which are not really in my area of expertise. I then asked him about the possibility of updating our COVID vaccines every year. We do that for flu, after all, to stay on top of viral evolution. Certainly, I think in order to prevent people from getting infected, we are going to have to, it would be necessary to give booster vaccines. And I think in my mind, it makes a lot of sense to make the vaccine sort of similar to the current viruses. So now the virus that's most common is Delta and probably the future viruses will be descendants of Delta. So in my mind, it would make sense that going forward vaccines, you know, as, lo as long as what I just said remains true, going forward vaccines should, should have Delta or whatever future descendant of Delta becomes prevalent in them. You know, as far as how necessary booster vaccines are, that sort of comes a lot to the question of how severe are breakthrough infections and how important is it to prevent them? And I mean, at this point, we know that breakthrough infections are less severe than, you know, sort of primary infections, but they can still in some cases be severe. So at this point, my personal calculation is that if I'm offered a booster vaccine, I'm going to get it because it, it makes a lot of sense. That said, I think long-term, at some point, we need to use epidemiology and public health and just sort of thinking as a society to decide exactly what is sort of a tolerable burden of infection to determine how frequently people need to get booster vaccines, you know, because, because obviously it doesn't, no vaccination regime at this point is going to eliminate SARS-CoV-2. So it's going to be about using vaccines to sort of mitigate the total burden of disease to a manageable level. 
This next part gets a little bit geeky, but it's interesting. I wanted to know about something called epistasis, which is a phenomenon that he's studied. It's the subject of a bunch of his recent papers. And it turns out it has to do with the stability of the virus and how viruses can give rise to new variants with multiple mutations, which is what's happened with SARS-CoV-2. So what is epistasis and the idea that uh, protein stability? I was just looking at some of your past papers, and that's really interesting. Yeah, so, so the idea of epistasis, and this actually will become very important for thinking about SARS-CoV-2 evolution, sort of the, the longer term. As these variants accumulate more and more mutations, you get ones with combinations of mutations. So for instance, the beta variant has N501Y and E484K and K417N, three different mutations. And then a question you can start to ask is, are each of these mutations individually beneficial or is it only when they're working in some particular combination that they're beneficial? And so that's that's a phenomenon of epistasis where sometimes the effects of mutations when they're in combinations can be different than the effects of mutations on their own. And this is a very important factor in shaping and constraining evolution. Because for one thing, the virus is, because it has, there's a lot of viruses out there and they have a pretty high mutation rate, they're very effective at exploring the single mutations. Like single beneficial mutations are found fairly rapidly. However, even for a virus, there's a lot of combinations of mutations and it can take the virus a long time to sort of randomly land on some combination of mutations. Or maybe the way it happens is first the virus has to get one mutation and then it can get another mutation. And so all of these processes can slow down evolution and can also make it much more contingent, right? So if the effect of one mutation depends on another mutation, then some event that randomly happened at some point in the past can sort of open up or close off new evolutionary pathways. So, so this is sort of the general phenomenon about, about the stasis and sort of why it's important in understanding and thinking about the evolution like we're talking about. Is there anything that can be learned from the current human infecting coronaviruses, the common cold ones? Yeah, so certainly we know that the current human endemic common cold coronaviruses, like in our group, we've specifically studied one called coronavirus 229E. They are undergoing evolution to erode antibody immunity. And that's probably one of the reasons that people are reinfected with these viruses about every three to five years. And so they, I think they give us a template that just the same way their evolution is sort of gradually getting away from the antibody immunity. The same thing is likely to happen with SARS-CoV-2. And indeed, we can already now see it starting to happen with SARS-CoV-2. So I do think they probably foreshadow a lot about how SARS-CoV-2 will evolve to escape antibodies. Another question people obviously always want to ask is, you know, as alluded to by the name you're referring to, a feature of the common cold coronavirus is they typically cause common colds rather than life-threatening illnesses. And a question that people often want to know is over time, will the same become true of SARS-CoV-2? It'll become more of a common cold and less of like a severe life-threatening disease. And I think at this point, we just can't answer that question. <laughs> I, I, there's a lot of speculation both ways, both of which is plausible, but I don't think it's possible to say at this point whether SARS-CoV-2 is going to remain a disease with similar severity. I mean, clearly we know that once people are infected once and they're only getting breakthrough infections, the disease severity is less, but in some cases it's still substantial, right? And I don't think we can really answer at this point is over time, are viral infections going to become more mild or are they going to remain fairly severe? I think we just don't know the answer to that yet. 
My next question is about the origin of the virus, and my guest, Jesse Bloom, has been one of the few scientists who's been really open and outspoken about the fact that a lab leak is one possibility, and one that's definitely worth investigating. He made a case for that view on a panel discussion put together by Science Magazine a couple of months ago. I had one other question about, sort of loosely related to the um, origin of the pandemic, and that is you know, whether there are standards of safety for lab research, whether people should, you know, be able to do what you do and, and, and experiment with the protein, you know, the isolated proteins, but shouldn't be able to tamper with the viruses themselves because you could have an accident. Yeah, I mean, that's obviously a really complicated and, and big picture question. Uh, so there certainly are different biosafety levels for different types of experiments. So for instance, the types of experiments that we predominantly do in our lab with coronaviruses, which are not actually working with the replication competent coronavirus or just working with the proteins or pseudotype viral particles, those have lower biosafety because we're not actually generating infectious virus. And my personal view is that the biggest concern in experiments and the things that we need to most worry about are experiments with what are called potential pandemic pathogens. So those are viruses that are not yet prevalent in the human population but could cause pandemics if they escaped. And so in, for instance, SARS-CoV-2 used to be a potential pandemic pathogen, right? Because it wasn't in humans and then it got in humans and it caused this pandemic. And I think work with potential pandemic pathogens needs to be considered very carefully because of the devastating global consequences if there are accidents. That said, with SARS-CoV-2 today, I, I still think it's obviously a, a dangerous virus. It's important to use good biosafety, but SARS-CoV-2 today is no longer a potential pandemic pathogen, right? It's now actually an endemic human virus. And so if there were a lab accident, I mean, that would be bad and there needs to be lots of biosafety. But if there were a lab accident with SARS-CoV-2, it would no longer cause a new pandemic because the virus is already out there and there's plenty of ways people can get it otherwise. So I think now I would be most concerned about other SARS-related coronaviruses or influenza viruses that are not yet in humans, but have the potential to cause a pandemic. And, and, and in my mind, this sort of potential pandemic pathogen is, is really where the, the concerns about biosafety have to like go up many, many notches because the, it goes beyond just consideration of safety of the researcher and goes to considerations about safety of the entire globe. Absolutely. And that really gets to, you know, what people are calling gain of function research, which I think is a term that, that people have been talking about a lot, because I think in the general public, we were surprised that this type of research goes on to the extent it does, because as soon as you hear about it, you think, oh, my God, that is so dangerous. Yeah. And I think gain of function is, is probably an overly broad term. I mean, there's a lot of things that could fall under that umbrella that are not. I, I, I in particular like to think about gain of function on potential pandemic pathogens, right? You know, it's on something where an accident could have global consequences. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's, I think the part that's, that's really needs to be treated with some degree of concern and possibly even alarm. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, how important do you think it is to continue to investigate the origin of this pandemic? I mean, I think it's really important because, I mean, I think both people want to know, and I think understanding how this pandemic originated will probably, you know, provide insights that could hopefully help mitigate the risk of future pandemics. But I are also think even with what we already know, at this point, it's plausible, it's been plausible for a while, that a future pandemic could emerge either from a natural zoonosis or from a lab accident. So what we need to do is figure out ways to prepare 
and mitigate for both of these, and in particular, do research that could help deal with the future pandemic without creating risks of a lab-associated pandemic. Well, I was reminded of what one of my previous guests said about the need to do science, even if we don't know exactly how it's going to be useful. That was Neil deGrasse Tyson. And here, I think it's really important for us to study every aspect of this virus, including where it came from. And that means looking at all possibilities, even if they are politically incorrect. And there's no question that understanding where this virus came from and how it's evolved in the past will help us better predict how it's going to evolve in the future. It is frustrating to learn that we still can't predict that much about what's going to happen next with this pandemic, and to know how much the experts are still relying a lot on educated guesses. But I really appreciated my guest Jesse Bloom's honesty in talking about what we still don't know and what they still hope to learn. Thank you for listening to Follow the Science. Follow the Science is produced by Faye Flam with funding by the Society for Professional Journalists. Today's episode was edited by Seth Glicksman with music by Kyle Imperator. You can follow us on Facebook for the latest, but if you'd like to hear more Follow the Science, be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast fix.